Good morning, everyone. If you would open your Bibles to Genesis 22, please. We will read that together in a moment. While you're turning there, I want to draw your attention to another insert in the bulletin, and that is uh, this uh, PBF survey that you've got there. And I would like you to take that, uh, uh, take that out, glance at it for just a moment, and stick it in the back of your Bible, and not take that survey while we're doing the sermon. How about that? <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if people are taking notes or writing notes, so you never know. But anyway, so uh, we're going to get to that uh, at the end of our service today, and uh, I will talk more about it at the time. My goal is to finish a few minutes early to uh, give you some time to work through that. It shouldn't take long. It's, uh, it's not an essay kind of uh, survey or anything like that. But uh, if you would keep that in mind, uh, I will attempt to do so as well. We are in Genesis chapter 22, a familiar passage and familiar because you've read it and thought about it a lot and because we spoke on it last week and uh, we want to hit on some different aspects of this passage this week as well. Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, 
Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we calm our hearts this morning before you. With your word open in front of us to a profound passage with profound and far-reaching meaning. And yet we are so often distracted, Father. We often come here, and maybe today we have come here with other things on our mind regarding events that have gone before, regarding events that uh, will come after, or maybe just that we fear will come after. Father, I pray that you would help us to focus on your word today, to hear what you have for us. We pray that you, by your Spirit, would minister to us, even in these next few minutes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is your most prized possession? We're not, not going to have uh, anyone raise their hands. We're not going to have people blurt out what is that thing that's their most prized possession. But probably each of us has maybe that thing or a couple things that, that are uh, really, really dear to us. And I remember when I was going through grad school, uh, I had to buy a, uh, an original languages Bible. So it's Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament and a Greek New Testament. And, and it's about that thick. And it was $100 to pay for it. And that was uh, 20, I don't know, 25 years ago, something like that. And $100 was pretty hard to come by for a starving college student. And I loved this thing. I just loved this thing. It was amazing to me to be able to open up and read uh, in the original languages and work through that. And, and it really was my single most prized possession. I just loved this thing. Well, I remember one day when uh, Brianna was much younger and, and uh, we were, um, I had books stacked up next to me. I was studying, uh, sitting on the couch, and next to me I had a stack of books, probably eight or ten books high. And on the very top, I had my Biblia Sacra, my original language's Bible, and on top of that, I had a cup of coffee. Yes, that's right. Just because I was in grad school didn't mean I was very smart, okay? <laughs> my coffee sitting on top of there, my daughter running around and playing, and of course, you know what happens next. She came and spilled the coffee, and bleh. 
down over that stack of books, and most importantly was that original languages Bible that's so valuable. That was my most prized possession. I just loved that thing. And, and initially, I was so frustrated that now it has coffee stains all down the pages. When you open it up, you can see where the, where the spill was worse and all that kind of stuff. Well, now, after all these years, I love it all the more because of that. I've thought about having it rebound, and I thought, I don't want to do that because I, I like the coffee stains. It's a good memory. It's a good reminder. It reminds me of Brianna. And so uh, that, that, was my, that was my prized possession. I cherished that uh, more than, uh, than any other possession I owned at the time. Saying something is the most valuable thing that we have, the most valuable thing to us, is really another way of saying that that's the thing we fear losing the most. You know, if I lost some of my other school books, they might have even been more expensive. Uh, they might have been, of course, easier to read. But that was the one that I really, really wanted to hang on to. And I think those two notions are connected together. The biblical notion of fear is like the flip side of the value coin. What we truly value the most, we will serve with our lives. And as we have gone through the saga of Abraham and, uh, and Sarah and now with Isaac coming on the scene and we've worked through this for the past number of months and we've kind of agonized with Abraham and Sarah as they've heard promise after promise after promise, as they've taken uh, wrong turn after mistake after uh, just frustration, we kind of can relate to them and we can, we can feel for them and we, we wonder about them now that Isaac has come on the scene how much they value him in contrast to how much they value God. And that's a, a genuine question for someone who has waited for so long and, and all of their hope is wrapped up in this child. Well, all of that is kind of the background for what happens here in Genesis chapter 22. And in the beginning of 21, they receive their son. They finally have the boy that they've been waiting all this time to have. They have Isaac, and they're, they're so ecstatic, and, and we saw all that went on with that. But the question is, Abraham, do you value him more than you value God? Or to put it the, the, the other way, do you fear God more than you fear losing your son? And that's the question. And I would, I would hate to have that question uh, put to me, I could probably give an answer, and I would like to give a verbal answer. I wouldn't want to show my work. <laughs> but you have that question, the question of fear uh, that, uh, that, that is being put to Abraham, this test that's being given. Well, first of all, we need to notice there in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham. What's the nature of testing? It's important for us to keep in mind when we look at Scripture and think about testing and uh, versus temptation, that those two things are different things. We read in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. There's a notion of tempting that is trying to lure something, someone to do something evil. You're trying to trip them up. You're trying to cause them to act in a way that is destructive to them. Satan is the one who tempts, and he does so to destroy, because he's trying to trip you up. He wants you to fall on your face. He's trying to lure you into doing that evil thing for your own destruction. 
It's Satan who tempts. And God doesn't tempt, but he tests us. He tests us to strengthen us. He tests us to see the genuineness of our character. I tease my my children when uh, not everybody loves tests like uh, academic tests, school tests, and things like that. I always enjoyed them. Uh, I usually enjoyed them. I didn't always enjoy them. But I saw it as an opportunity to show what you know. Well, you can also look at it the other way, right? It's an opportunity to fall flat on your face because you don't know it, right? But I, I, I try to look at tests that way, and that's really uh, the nature of God's testing is, is he, he, he wants to prove the genuineness of your faith. He wants to reveal what is truly there. And that doesn't happen until we face testing, and the rabbis would say that God only tests those who are precious to him, those that he knows will pass. And the test here, of course, is uh, to see whether Abraham truly fears God or whether he fears more losing his son. We've talked about the fear of God in this section of Scripture. It's been a a topic of our conversation. Uh, But uh, just to to remind ourselves kind of what it is, because, because God is viewed as He really is, as the most valuable being and the most valuable relationship that we could possibly have, a person who fears God reveres Him. A person who fears God submits to Him. A person who fears God obeys Him. He's got a right understanding of the relationship between Him and God. He's got a a right view of the value of God, the worth of God, and who He really is. And that's the test. Abraham, are you, do you fear God this way? Now Now that you've got this competition for your affection, perhaps, do you fear God? And so this test, of course, is put to Him and And we won't uh, go through it in detail today, but I want to notice just a couple of aspects, uh, a couple of components of this test that uh, that maybe we haven't thought about. The first component is the one that jumps off the page at us. I think it would be very difficult for us to read this passage and not be struck with the first component of the test, which is a very emotional component. It's a very relational component. And that's, that's kind of built up throughout this passage. Even as God says to him there in verse 2, he says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go and offer him. You've got that aspect of this is the son you love. Now remember, Ishmael was on the scene, and Abraham loved Ishmael too, but Ishmael has sort of been taken off the scene. Now there's the one promised son. This is the son you love, Abraham, and he's the one you're going to offer. And so you do have that emotional component um, introduced into the story. And if you will look down uh, through this chapter uh, quickly, you will notice that the word son occurs a lot in these couple of paragraphs. Actually, 13 times in this section that we read today, you have son occur. So the author wants us to notice, God wants us to to keep in mind that this is Abraham offering his son. So there's a giant emotional component that comes with that. We kind of talked about that uh, last week, and that's the one that jumps off the page, but but I think that's the obvious one. There is a second aspect of this challenge that perhaps doesn't jump off the page as much, and I want to focus on that a little bit more, and that is the test is regarding 
pitting the promise against the command. You have a competition going on here in, uh, in this chapter between the promise of God that is wrapped up in this Son. The promise that He will, uh, that he will be the one uh, through whom his, uh, Abraham's offspring will be named. That it's through this Son that the, that the, that the nation will be formed. That it's, it's through this Son, it's in this Son that all of the promises are wrapped up. And we're going to see even in this chapter that the, the blessing that's going to go to the ends of the earth comes through this Son. It's all right there. The promise is bound up in Him. So if He, Isaac, is the embodiment of the promise, the promise is found in Him, and, and Abraham has come, and come to expect fulfillment of those promises in this son, Isaac. And, by the way, this isn't just Abraham making some wild uh, conclusion. We've seen them make some mistakes before because they didn't understand uh, which, which son it would be. And so first, remember, Abraham thought, well, maybe it's Eliezer of Damascus. Since I don't have any children, God must mean this heir will be another someone from my household. God says, no, it'll be your own child, Abraham. So you remember what comes next? Hagar has entered into the picture, and Abraham indeed does have a child. But God says, no, it's not that child, uh, Ishmael, who was born between Abraham and Hagar. No, it's going to be a child of Abraham and Sarah, and you're going to call his name Isaac. Isaac is going to be the one. I'm talking about Isaac. So there's no confusion. There's no ambiguity. And this son, Isaac, your son, your only son, Isaac, that very one, the child of promise is being endangered by the command of God. So you've got, you've got these two very clear components of this, of this challenge, that the, the promise of God wrapped up in Isaac is being threatened by the command by God to slay Isaac. So you see the challenge. You see the difficulty beyond the emotional one. You see what's going on in this difficult command. I say difficult. It's an impossible command. I can't even imagine this command. But, but I want us to keep those two things in mind. That's, that's what's going on in this passage, not just the emotional component. I think we, um, we see the emotional component right there on the page when we read it. But I challenge you, it's not actually visible there on the page. We bring that to the text. As you read through it, beyond the repetition of the word son, beyond the statement that this is your only son, Isaac, whom you love, there's not emotional language in this passage. You might be shocked by that. I would encourage you to go back this afternoon and read through it and see how much emotional language is not there. I think that one... The emotional aspect is, is sort of a given, and it's a, it's, a, it's a part that makes it stick with us, but, but a, a larger component of this test is the promise of God versus the command of God. And so the question is going to be, Abraham, are you going to obey? In this difficult, shall I say impossible situation, are you going to obey? This is a test of Abraham's Fear of God. But secondly, we see evidence of that fear. And this is, this is something very shocking to us when you look uh, through uh, verses 3 through 10. 
Abraham rose early in the morning. He steps out in obedience immediately. There's no haggling. There's no debating with God, and we know that Abraham's capable of that. But he doesn't do that. He saddles his donkey, takes two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And notice he cuts the wood after he's already saddled everything up, which is unusual. And, and the scholars think that maybe Abraham is a little bit flustered because he did all this other stuff, and then he finally got around to cutting the wood, but I, I don't know. Nevertheless, we see him obeying. He steps up immediately and steps out in obedience. He is going to obey God, it would appear. Out of obedience to God, he, he brings his promised and long-awaited son, his one and only son, to the very place of sacrifice. That's what he's doing. He, he, he is obeying what God said to do. And, and, and if you read this slowly and if you think about what's going on, that's amazing that he did that. That's the test that he's facing. And we see that as he's obeying, he's following through all these steps that God told him to do. He's traveling to the place and he's got the son with him. And when they get to the place and they leave the other two behind and they go up on the mountain and, and they take all the things necessary for his sacrifice except for the sacrifice itself, he's obeying. He's going up there to do this. And he's asked by his son, verse 7, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? The son realizes it. Abraham has realized it all along, and Abraham's answer in verse 8 is amazing. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went on together. Abraham's obedience is amazing. In light of the emotional component of the test, his obedience is amazing. But even in light of the quandary that it is, that the promise of God has been pitted against the command of God, how would you act in such a situation? What would you do if you understand clearly the, the promise of God? It's been explained to you over the course of decades. It's been clarified. It's been, you've, you've received direct revelation from God. This is the promise. And that promise is being threatened by the command. And this is what's amazing. Abraham takes the attitude, that's God's problem. I don't have to resolve that. God made me this promise. Excellent. God gave me this command. Okay, I'll obey. In, in Abraham's mind, it's as though this isn't a, a, a quandary for him to resolve. He, I'm sure he recognizes the promise or the, the, the quandary between the promise and the command. I'm certain he recognizes that, but he says, basically, this is God's to resolve. I'm not risking the promise by obeying the command. I'm doing what God had said to do, and that's that's a confidence that God had instilled and developed and grown in Abraham over the course of these decades. It's amazing that he would be willing to behave in such a way. I remember uh, my first, it was my first night in Chicago. Uh, going to school, you know, I graduated from school here in Fallon, had grown up here on a farm and went to Chicago. And if you've ever been to Chicago, it's not like Fallon. 
And uh, I show up and, and I arrive after nighttime and, and uh, get to my, my uh, dorm room and, and uh, no one else is there because I was a new student. So I was, you know, there were only a few new students on at the time. And of course it was January. And so, well, I, you know, I grew up outdoors. I grew up recognizing landmarks. And so I kind of know my way around by landmarks, but I was in Chicago and, and all these buildings, I didn't recognize a single landmark. And so I thought, I'm going to go for a walk and get my bearings, right? Well, okay, that's fine, except that Moody Bible Institute is right in downtown Chicago. And there are neighborhoods that are less than savory, like two blocks from Moody. I didn't know that. I just went outside and thought, I'm going to get my bearings, and so I went for a walk, right? But I was confident. I mean, I was a you know, 19-year-old kid, 20-year-old kid, and I thought, pfft. No problem, man. This is, the world is scared of me. I'm not scared of the world, you know. And I go for a walk in neighborhoods I should have been scared of. My, my confidence was foolhardy. God protected me that night because I was unwise. That's not the kind of confidence that Abraham has here. Abraham has the kind of confidence that has come from a decades of, of being tested, of walking with God and seeing God provide, seeing God protect, seeing God uh, work in his life throughout the course of decades. He has that kind of confidence where Abraham's saying, okay, uh, uh, this conflict that I see, that's God's problem. He's the one who told me both of them, so I'm going to trust him and go and do what he said to do. That kind of confidence was not foolhardy. It was not an unconsidered and undeveloped confidence. It was a confidence that God had put there. God has caused this test in Abraham's life to answer the question of whether Abraham truly fears God. Well, the patriarch passes the test. That's another shocking thing. He passes that test, and, and he gives ample evidence of the genuine fear of God that he has. But then our passage closes with God's approval of that fear. He had given evidence of fear. Now we see God's approval of that fear. Well, first of all, we see uh, the Lord intervening just in time, verse 11. Right as in verse 10, Abraham reached out uh, his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. God steps in. He intervenes just in time. And of course, uh, we see that, that God says to him, do not lay your hand, verse 12, on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He stopped him. He said, you've passed the test. I see your fear. I see the genuineness of the fear that you have for me, that, that you rightly understand that, 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 that God is, is the highest, most desirable, and the best, and you've acted accordingly. I see that. It's not just words. You had the knife in your hand, Abraham. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and of course there's the, the ram who was caught in the thicket. And he goes and he takes that ram and he offers that ram as the burnt offering in his place. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, 
Because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. He's told him he will bless him. But he's emphasizing it more this time. He says, I will surely bless you. And he amplifies it even further. He says, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. He said that before, but here's a new one. As the sand that is on the seashore. He's, he's embellishing. He's, he's explaining. He's making it obvious that, that he really is going to do this. He will surely do it. And he says, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Not just they will have the land, not just they will, they will live in this, in this land that's been promised to you, but they will have victory over their enemies. They will possess the land because they have overcome their enemies. They will possess the gate of their enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God amplifies the promises. There's nothing really new there, but it's just a, the language is, is more intense. God is rewarding him, not only by providing the ram, not only by stopping him from, from slaughtering his son, but then by going back to the promises he, he started receiving back in Genesis chapter 12 and, and developing them just a little bit more. And that's God stepping in, God re-promising, as it were. But there's a key. There's a key I, I want to focus on. I, I skipped over it momentarily. Not because I forgot it, but because I want to focus on it for just a little bit. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. We can't go through this passage without catching that little phrase, instead of his son. The ram is a substitute for the child. The ram is a substitute sacrifice for the child. That there's going to be one who is put to death in place of another one. The command was, put your son to death. The son ought to be the one. But the ram is the one who bears the penalty. The ram is the one who bears the knife. And of all of the things that are pointing forward to Christ, of all the things that are pointing forward to how God is going to redeem humanity, we must dwell on that one for a moment. There will come a time when every sinner will come to that moment of judgment where they deserve the knife, where the knife is for them, where they are the ones who ought to be sacrificed, where they are the ones who ought to bear the penalty and bear that penalty forever. That's the consequence of sin. That's the penalty for sin that every sinner deserves. But this passage develops in us an expectation, an anticipation that God loves substitutionary atonement. That God loves 
to provide a ram in the place of the, the child who ought to bear the knife. That, that God would send His Son Jesus, that Jesus would come on the scene, that He would be obedient to all of God's law. He would live a life of perfect holiness. He would direct His, his people back to the one true God. And then He would go to the cross as the spotless Lamb, as the one who has no blemish within Himself, to offer Himself as a substitute for sinful man. So that we who deserve the knife, we who, because of our sin, ought to have that knife plunged in, instead, God substitutes the Lamb of God to take that knife for me, to be the one to pay the penalty in my place, to be the one to pay the penalty for the guilty person. All of that in this story and all of that that we read about in verse 13 where he offered, he provided the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. We cannot miss the notion of substitution when we read this. We cannot miss substitution when we think about the cross. The cross isn't just about Jesus suffering. It's not just about Him offering a, an example of what it means to suffer and remain faithful to God, though He does that. The cross is the place where we were moved off of the wood and the lamb was placed upon the wood and the knife was driven home. He went to that cross for you and for me. And praise God for that. So when we look at the cross, we should think of this story. When we look at the cross, we should, we should remember another pile of wood on an altar where there had been a son moments before. You, me, child, bound and ready to receive judgment. But where God has provided in the nick of time, the ram caught in the thicket. Though the difference, of course, is that the ram was caught in the thicket by his horns and he got snagged and he couldn't get out and Jesus gave himself freely, willingly, desiring to do so in our place to pay that penalty for us. That, that we would be redeemed, that by faith in Christ, by looking to Him and realizing the only reason we get to live is because of our substitute, because of our Savior, because of His righteousness and His penalty. I want Him. He's the most valuable thing to me. I want Christ. So I have a couple of points of application in the close of this. And the first one is simple. Don't limit God's power. Abraham had learned his lesson. Abraham got to the point where the, the math just didn't work. The promise is all wrapped up in Isaac and the command is all wrapped up in killing Isaac. Surely God's made a mistake. Surely I've got to figure a way out. Surely I've got to figure out how to balance this and do something to solve the problem. Abraham just proceeded. That's God's problem. God made me that promise, and God gave me this command. It's up to God. And so he stepped forward, and he obeyed amazingly. I think often we, 
limit God's power, if we can't resolve something, if we can't see a way forward, if we can't make something work, then we're all, we're all tied up as if this is a problem for God. No, folks, let's believe the promises of God and let's obey the commands of God and leave the math to Him. Don't limit God's power. But secondly, don't be afraid that God is going to give you a task like this. He's not. Abraham was a unique character in in the history of redemption, a, a, a singular person in the history of all redemption who was given this command. He was a prophet. He heard directly from God. We hear from God through God's Word. He was... the the, the recipient of these promises that that, that started being developed into the history of redemption that we have in the rest of the Bible. He's a unique character in all of history. And just as as unique as you are, you are not unique like that. He's not going to give us a command like this. So don't don't be afraid that that somehow God is going to command you to do something uh, crazy like this. This is... From our perspective, this just seems crazy. But in its context, which is extremely unique, we can see the beauty of the situation. But let's not you and, uh, you and me be afraid that God is going to um, ex- expect such a thing of us. But when you do understand from God, from the Bible itself, what He wants you to do, obey. You don't don't have to figure out how the math works. When God tells you from His Word, when you learn in understanding His Word what He wants you to do, go and do it. Obey. You might be in some kind of an immoral or unethical job, but it pays well, pays the bills. But it requires you to disobey God's commands in order to do your job. What should you do? you should quit that job. Unless you can find a way to do that job in a way that is obedient to God, quit that job. And you say, but I I don't know how I would, you know, how am I going to feed my family? Well, I don't know how you're going to feed your family, but not by disobeying God. The command is there. Trust that God will work out the math. If you can't change those sinful aspects of your job, then then get out of it and trust the Lord to find you a new one. Somehow God will provide for you to obey Him as He provided for Abraham. Or maybe you're in an immoral relationship. You need to get out of that situation. If you're living together, move out today. And you say, but I don't know where she's going to live then or I don't know where I'm going to live then. I don't either. We can figure that out. The obedience is clear. Let God resolve the math. Maybe you just need to get married. Maybe there's another solution. But God will provide for you to obey Him. The final point of application. Don't follow your heart. Napoleon Dynamite was wrong. Don't follow your heart. Imagine if Abraham had followed his heart in this story. It wouldn't have read like this. 
The emotional component of our problems and decisions can all too easily take over when they should take a back seat. The, the emotional component for Abraham would have driven him crazy. And he would have decided very differently instead of obeying God. You need to do what God tells you in His Word, not what your heart tells you to do. Remember your heart, which is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Remember, Jesus said, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, and murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So don't follow your heart. Follow what God says in His Word. I think we get bound up in decision-making so often because we give a place of priority to how I feel about it. Well, how you feel about it is, is a component in the decision. It's not the decision-making component. It's not the one that ought to govern you. Don't follow your heart. So as we look at this story very briefly today, in, uh, in the, this account of Abraham and Isaac, the question before you today is, do you fear God? Do you value Him the most above everything else? If not, look at this chapter again and see that He has provided Jesus, exemplified in this passage, the substitutionary Lamb, he wasn't the ram caught in the thicket. He gave himself willingly, who for the joy set before him endured the cross to redeem sinners. And look on him of whom the prophet Isaiah said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our Lord is the most valuable, the most to be feared, worthy to be revered and lauded and obeyed for who He is in His person and what He has done to redeem sinners like you and like me from the just punishment that we deserve. He is lovely and He is worthy. And as Abraham amazingly proved in this passage, He is to be feared above all. That's the God we're talking about. That's the Savior with whom we have to do. Let's pray. Father, this passage is very deep. This passage is convicting, perhaps confusing in ways, certainly difficult definitely profound. And Father, we look and we see that Abraham feared you in, in amazing ways, in, in the extreme. And we're convicted that we, we do not. And so we pray that you would forgive us for that. 
We pray that you would forgive us for that and our other sins because of the substitute exemplified by this ram. Jesus himself who went to that cross for us to pay that penalty, to be that substitute sacrificed in our place instead of us. And by faith in him, we get to stand before you as as if we had perfectly always obeyed you, as if we had perfectly always feared you. And ironically, the more we dwell upon that, the more we do fear you as we value you more and more. Father, we ask that you would take your word and drive it into our hearts even, even this morning, the rest of this Lord's Day and this week, that we would see Christ, our living sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family up here to pray for you in a while, but I would remind you of what you so dutifully stuck in the back of your Bible, and I would encourage you to take that out, uh, take just a few minutes. Uh, Most of those are circle, won't take you long at all. If you've got some writing to do on the back, go for it. It should take you 10 minutes at the very outside, and then once you're done, if you will uh, just fold it up and stick it in the offering box, or you can leave it at the uh, offering tray that's in the back there, either way. Uh, And final reminder before I go is that evening service tonight will not be in the fellowship hall. It will be here in the conference room back here. We're going to move that back over there starting tonight. But God bless you all. Thank you so much. You're dismissed.